This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. Hello, I'm Robert Hutchinson, Control Risks East Africa partner. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast on the Africa Risk Reward Index, RE 2022. The Risk Reward Index is an annual from Control Risks that tracks the evolution of the investment landscape in major African markets and provides a long-term outlook of key trends shaping investment in these economies. Each year, our team assigns risk and reward scores to a range of African countries, the former taking into account political dynamics and the latter evaluating the economic potential of various countries. This year's report highlights some interesting dynamics. On the reward side, we've seen improvements in Mozambique and Gola and Senegal, no doubt with the latter two's oil sector likely providing much-needed economic boost. On the risk side, we've seen significant improvements in the scores of Côte d'Ivoire, reflecting the positive impact of ongoing national reconciliation efforts there. In addition to these scores, in 2022, we have identified three themes which we'll be discussing in turn on today's podcast. Our first theme tackles the topical issue of Africa's position in the global energy transition as the international push to decarbonize meets the institutional realities. Our second theme looks at the question of food security in Africa and whether internal markets will be the solution to Africa's food conundrum. Finally, our third theme turns to political discontent and how it is or isn't propelling change on the African continent. As is the intent of the Africa Risk Reward Index, Ari, we will attempt to look at both the upside and downside of these issues as we discuss them. To discuss this, I'm joined by Zainab Aminashan, Patricia Rodriguez, and Seamus Duggan, our analyst based at Controller's Hub offices in Lagos, Nairobi, and Johannesburg, respectively. Jacques Nell, the head of macro for Africa, and our strategic partner, Oxford Economics, will be providing his insight as well. Seamus, starting with you, can you talk us briefly through the first theme on energy transition with perhaps your view on Southern Africa's position, conversations on the decarbonisation agenda? Yes, thanks very much, Hutch, and a good morning, afternoon or evening to everyone that's joining us today. Um, so as you mentioned, the first theme that we're speaking about is energy transition Now, this is a conversation that, of course, has been getting increasingly louder and louder for the last decade, but it's one that has taken on, I think, a a new significance in the last six, seven, eight months to a year. That is, of course, because we have seen the events happening in Ukraine and the impact that this has had on global energy supplies and the knock-on effect on inflation. So in Africa, this global energy dynamic is even more complicated. So we have seen, as I was saying, for years now, a growing chorus of voices calling for companies in the private sector and public sector to shun fossil fuels and, and international pressures to decarbonize uh, the global energy economy. But despite this, Africa's oil and gas reserves are attracting new attention, obviously to the delight of African governments who find themselves rather castra on the back of a global COVID-19 pandemic. So in the last couple of years in particular, we've seen many African countries announce new oil and gas fines, um, while others are hoping that renewed interest in hydrocarbons uh, and a green economy will be a boon for African revenues. Now, 
some of these discoveries have, of course, disappointed global uh, and domestic environmentalist groups and others who see the energy transition as an opportunity for Africa to sidestep fossil fuels entirely in favor of a truly green future, what we could call, I suppose, a green energy transition. It's understandable why, of course, the continent has enormous wind, solar, and water resources, and many African countries are already sourcing a large amount of their current power from renewable sources. Uh, and that's true both at kind of the macroeconomic level, but also down to the population or citizenship level, where in very rural areas where we've seen a failure of the electrical grid to spread, individuals are turning to the benefits of solar and other sources. Now, we do expect energy generation and export in Africa to grow in the coming years, bringing new revenue streams for government. And this is, of course, a, a win-win situation um, for government and investors. But I think people should obviously be aware that new entrants and existing sector players will need to understand the energy projects still face severe implementation challenges, uh, including heightened scrutiny of environmental, social and governance issues, uh, otherwise known as ESG. But on the actual complexities of the energy transition and, you know, I suppose what we can call tension between a green energy transition and a so-called just energy transition, uh, with the latter being more of a scaled or, or kind of balanced transition that still takes into account oil and gas and fossil fuels and more slowly moves towards renewable energy. If we look at some countries in Africa and, and particularly in Southern Africa at the moment, we can really see how these dynamics are playing out and how their impact is being felt. So I'm sure many of those listening in will be aware of South Africa, for example, where we have frequent power outages owing to faults in the generation, distribution and transformation of electricity. Now, South Africa, on one hand, is a country of enormous renewable energy potential with long summer months with wind and water potential. But it is also a country that historically has relied on a very heavy coal generation base. It's amongst the biggest producers of coal energy in the world. And because of that, historically, a lot of employment in South Africa depends on the, the coal generation economy. Now, South Africa is at a point where it needs energy and where it has the potential to produce both your historic, I suppose, fossil fuel power, but also to shift towards cleaner, renewable energy. But the government has to ask itself, if it were to make this shift faster, what would happen to the jobs? What would happen to the employment in the traditional coal sector? And how are labor unions going to react? And we, we already have an answer to that, which is that there is resistance to this kind of shift, despite the restrictions and the issues around power supply to the economy. So South Africa is a good example of a country that is trying to balance or trying to find its way through these issues. And in fact, we are starting to see something of a compromise situation where government is willing to open up the generation and distribution of power to the private sector, whereas energy has historically been largely monopolized by the state. Um, and I think South Africa will really set the example for many other countries in the region for how we should expect this transition to be handled going forward. I think another issue that countries in Africa are facing is that although they are attracting attention for oil and gas reserves, and although we are seeing a push by investors, even in the exploration phase, many of the companies in the private sector are facing increasingly activist shareholders 
particularly your, your large major global oil and gas companies. Now, once upon a time, we would speak about these large companies and their reserves, and you could say, well, you know, they have timescales of 50 to 100 years to sit on them and to kind of exploit them when appropriate. These timelines are, are, are becoming significantly shorter with these activist shareholders, with the course with global decarbonization. And so countries that are exploring their oil and gas reserves, countries that are looking to use fossil fuels, whether it's in places like Mozambique, or Uganda, or even historic producers like Nigeria or Sudan, these companies and the governments that oversee these reserves are, are having to make faster decisions these days and ultimately structural decisions about their economy and how they are going to balance these needs between a just transition and a green transition. Seamus, thank you very much for that. Perhaps before we turn to the next theme, I can pivot here to ask Patricia and Zena about what they see in their respective regions. Zena? Being based in Nigeria, the continent's largest oil and gas producer, have you seen efforts there to pivot away from oil and gas? Or is the appeal to supply European markets resulting in more interest in Nigeria and West Africa more broadly? Uh, thanks, Hutch. Uh, pleasure to be here and good morning from Lagos. Yes, we are seeing the Nigerian government, just like the South African government, as Seamus mentioned, making efforts to balance climate ambitions with the economic realities of being a hydrocarbon reliant you know, economy. You know, for Nigeria, fossil fuels like oil and gas provide resources to address short to medium term sovereign financing challenges. Um, we're seeing record oil prices, you know, that can be used to generate badly needed forex revenues for the country, you know, and, and the country also has very abundant gas reserves that can be used to tackle energy access and infrastructure gaps within the power sector, where the country is struggling to generate enough power for homes and for businesses. So while Nigeria has made you know, net zero pledges, it plans to reach net zero by 2060. It's also actively planning to develop largely untapped gas reserves over the next 10 years. It's dubbed that the decade of gas, you know, so it's it's looking at ambitious projects like the Trans-Saharan Gas Pipeline, which it aims to develop in partnership with Niger Republic and Algeria um, to access the European gas market, um, which, as we know, is currently facing significant supply challenges. Now, how far Nigeria goes in either direction really would depend on the availability of climate financing. So the country's energy transition plan projects about $400 billion would be required to move towards energy transition and stop relying on fossil fuels. That's not financing that the country currently has. And on the flip side, if there are demand levels for alternative gas supplies, especially across Europe, then that's a huge opportunity that would be difficult for a country like Nigeria to turn down over and above, you know, climate change um, obligations or priorities. Many thanks, Zena. And what's the situation in East Africa, Patricia? Thanks, Hutch, and hi, everyone. Just briefly, it's I think some of the dynamics that Seamus and Zainab have touched on in Southern and West, respectively, are also playing out uh, in East Africa. So the two major projects, so Uganda's oil project and its associated East African crude oil pipeline and Tanzania's offshore gas reserves are attracting renewed interest. Obviously, both of them are facing some challenges to do with environmentalists, especially the crude oil pipeline, which is struggling to find financing as um, different environmentalist groups have really mounted a very strong campaign against it. But the fact remains that both countries are very uh, eager to exploit these resources and are finding investors 
a little bit more enthusiastic about um, exploiting these resources. I will just highlight, though, that East Africa has, has tended to already be quite well ahead of the renewables curve. Kenya, for example, generates more than 70% of its power from renewable sources. And a lot of the projects that are being commissioned or that are likely to have a, a wider impact for the region tend to be hydro or solar-based. So there is definitely, as Seamus was saying, this tension between this just transition and renewables revolution, as it were. And I think East Africa is, uh, in general, trying to walk that fine line and balance both sides of it. Thank you very much. And while you have the floor, Patricia, we can turn to our second theme of food insecurity. Sure. So our second theme is around whether or not Africa's food security or rather food insecurity issue can be resolved internally. So as a direct consequence in a way of the crisis in Ukraine. Many African countries have found that they have this rather unhealthy reliance on external sources for things like grain imports. And more than that, we've seen and we can continue to see that many African countries continue to import vast quantities of food staples, spending billions of dollars uh, in imports. As food insecurity has grown, governments have had to extend their spending on things such as uh, subsidies to try and make food more affordable for their populations. And all of this has made the situation very difficult for governments at a time when they're already struggling with high debt, high external debt burdens. So in our second theme, we are trying to see whether or not the solution to Africa's food insecurity can actually be found internally. So in this theme, we look at whether the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement, AFCTFA, can actually push this regional integration and trade in food. But we do recognize that this is a, a kind of longer term goal, as it were. Uh, we're aware that for investors to be able to exploit these emerging opportunities along internal agricultural value chains, there still does need to be quite a bit of investment in things like basic infrastructure. You know, uh, Africa has quite a dearth of cold storage, for example, and many of um, the internal markets are still very much oriented towards export. So while we do have many food exporters, net exporters in Africa, with Cote d'Ivoire being the, the biggest one, a lot of these export destinations are outside of Africa. So in this theme, we're really trying to, to see whether or not this push towards uh, regional integration, propelled in, in some ways by the emerging food security issues that are global, it's not just Africa that's being affected, but we're trying to see whether or not this will open up opportunities for investors in the African continent to serve African markets. But as I mentioned, we are cognizant that this is more of a longer term opportunity and many companies, international companies evaluating these opportunities will probably need to be a little bit more patient as they wait for these opportunities to emerge. Thanks, Patricia. So let's bring you in, Jacques, as our partner from Oxford Economics. Patricia mentioned governments having to subsidise food imports. How has this impacted government finances overall? Sure, Hutch. Uh, thanks all for inviting me to join you all. I think it's important to first give some context regarding fiscal finances coming into this year. So as we all know, government finances took a severe knock in 2020. That was due to the drop in revenue, due to the slump in economic production. And government finances were sort of just starting to recover last year. Another important point is the debt service suspension initiative that the World Bank and IMF implemented in 2020. 
So the idea there was to delay any debt servicing to bilateral and multilateral lenders, but that initiative expired in December last year. So that means that these governments now again have to start servicing their debt. So, you know, after that 2020 knock, having to again service debt, a lot of governments came into this year in really weak fiscal positions. And then this happened, this shock happens. These subsidies are, of course, unplanned spending, which means that uh, adjustments have to be made for the budgets. Where that spending comes from is, of course, a difficult question. Often it's adjusted from things like capital investment or investment spending in general, or these governments have to borrow more. And at the moment, it's not a good time to borrow, given how international monetary conditions are tightening. And uh, most countries have seen their domestic interest rates also increase, uh, in some cases, quite significantly. And subsidies are also a pretty sticky spending. You know, a lot of them do have sunset clauses in. But as we've seen in uh, countries from Kenya, Egypt and South Africa, it's really hard to stop providing these subsidies because households sort of get used to them. And if the reason behind the subsidies are still in place, you know, if the prices are still that high, it just sort of delayed the impact. So governments are really going to be tested in this regard. But that being said, you know, these food subsidies have been critical in a lot of cases. And to just put some figures on that, uh, in a lot of advanced economies, food accounts for around 15% of their consumer price index uh, consumer baskets. But most African countries, this ratio exceeds 25%. And in countries like Ethiopia, Zambia, Sudan, and Nigeria, food accounts for over 50% of their consumer price uh, baskets. So that means that an average spending household spends around 50% of its income on food. So if food prices increase significantly, that really hits these households where it hurts. Yeah, that's quite concerning. Uh, a really interesting view. Uh, Jacques, and what do you make of the economic potential for the food ag-related industries and the impact of AFTA, the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement? Well, I think Africa's potential when it comes to uh, food production and its potential role as sort of a breadbasket for the world, or at least for itself, is unquestionable. You know, the, the continent has got the natural resources it needs. It just needs the investments, as Patricia mentioned, in infrastructure. And, of course, then the stable macroeconomic and political environments uh, needed to incentivize that investment. But what I do think is that this year has just shown how pressing the issue really is. It's exposed the continent's food insecurity. It's just shown how really dependent most African countries are on imports of even the most basic foodstuffs. And this for a region that's uh, one of the most vulnerable to price rises. And that's, of course, due to relative wealth levels on the continent. And also, as I mentioned, the fiscal support that these governments have provided will have some lasting fiscal legacies. Government finances will take quite a while to recover, especially to think back to where they were in 2019. So I have to concede that after every crisis, there's sort of this optimism that, you know, this was like the the final straw. Now things are going to have to change. You know, governments are now have to go take this serious. But I do think this crisis in particular, with it having such a focus on something as politically sensitive like food prices and also the fiscal implications that government finances will be under real pressure are under real pressure at the moment and will increasingly become under real pressure 
given higher borrowing costs going forward. Hopefully, a lot of African governments will now prioritize agricultural investment a bit more. And by that, I don't necessarily mean that governments will start investing more in agriculture because, as I mentioned, fiscal positions aren't what they were. So hopefully some developments in the policy space will get investment going in African agriculture because as we've seen, it's it's really necessary. Just on the Africa trade deal, it has to be said that it was very easy to get overexcited about it and then to thereafter be very disappointed with how slow things are going. Realistically, it's going to take decades to look anything like the more optimistic among us imagined it would look like. But I do think the important thing is to look out for the emergence of uh, new trade arteries between countries on the continent. That's going to be the most important first step where we do see you know, trade that wasn't occurring, now occurring between countries being produced one region consumed in another and to take it from there you know you have to start somewhere and if we just see all of these trade arteries emerge that's the first step and then we at least know that you know there's being progress made thanks Jacques. and zainab over to you i mean i was in lagos about a month ago and saw the amount of food that seemed to be imported and i was talking i'm talking about things like milk imported from as far away as europe Nigeria seems to be a key food importer. Would African and Africa-based products and producers really benefit from supplying Nigeria? Absolutely. There are immense benefits. So Nigeria, you know, as you mentioned, is a very, very large consumer market. It's actually the largest on the African continent. We have over 200 million citizens. So domestic demand is quite high. You know, as the RE shows, it's heavily reliant on imports, um, mostly from Europe, Asia and North America. You know, so the, the, the global supply chain disruptions that we're currently seeing present a unique opportunity for African and Africa-based suppliers to offer alternative supply sources for countries like Nigeria and you know have access to their multi-billion dollar import market of you know food stables, dairy products, fertilizers and other agro-commodities. These investors or these um, agro-investors can leverage technology-based solutions, collaborate with smallholder farmers, you know, states and local governments to establish commercial, you know, scale food production plants and processing parks across the country. Nonetheless, however, um, they should be mindful of, you know, security concerns, for example, especially in the middle belt part of the country, which is Nigeria's main food producing region. You know, we've seen prevalent clashes as a result of climate-driven migrations of cattle herders towards watering holes around farming communities. And that has, you know, created a protracted decades-long farmer-herdsmen conflict in that region. Um, We're also seeing an uptick in banditry and bandit attacks targeting farmers and their produce in that region. Um, So those are concerns that we should look at. And there are also, you know, concerns around increased regulatory scrutiny. So businesses would probably face, you know, more scrutiny from government institutions that are looking to generate revenue from, you know, targeted taxes, sanctions and tariffs towards foreign companies or foreign investors or also just impose protectionist policies to protect indigenous companies in the agricultural sector over foreign investors. So these are some of the things they should look at, but it's definitely still a very lucrative market for African and you know, Africa-based producers. Thanks, Zainab. We've spoken about insecurity in Nigeria being an inhibiting factor for agro-related industries, which gives us the opportunity to discuss our third theme, which is focused on political discontent and insecurity. Can you talk us through the third theme 
on political discontent, recognizing Nigeria cited quite a bit in the article? Sure. So most of the political discontent that we're seeing in Nigeria and across parts of West Africa, which is the region that um, I'm based over the last year, has mainly been driven you know, by sustained economic shocks from the COVID pandemic and the ongoing Ukraine conflict, both of which have had global ramifications, not just affecting African countries. But, you know, West African countries, Nigeria, you know, like many others, are struggling to respond to these shocks and they're facing more difficulties because, you know, as Jack mentioned, they have mounting public debt and they also are facing revenue constraints. To make matters even worse, there were unexpected hikes in commodity prices as a result of those disruptions to, to supply chains. And this has really impacted countries like Nigeria and quite a number of West African countries also due to their heavy reliance on importation of not just food staples, as Patricia mentioned, but fertilizers and fuel. So Nigeria, for example, spends about $15 billion annually on import subsidies for petroleum, um, refined petroleum. And, you know, things like this have triggered cost of living crisis across the region. And so in ARI, part of what we've looked at in this third theme are three broad trends, you know, that have emerged as a response to growing citizen frustration with the government's handling of these social economic challenges that we're seeing. So we've seen protests, for example, as one. Um, we've seen protests across Nigeria. We've seen protests across countries like Ghana, Sierra Leone, in West Africa, alone, and many other countries um, across the continent as a result of the exponential increase in consumer prices within such a short period and unadjusted living wages. So salaries are not being increased to meet up with the costs. Interest rates are increasing. Essentially, the cost of living has gone up. You're then seeing that, you know, trickle down to the cost of housing, the cost of food, the cost of transportation. And this is actually, you know, just compounding the frustrations that a lot of citizens have. And they're taking that anger out onto the streets. We've seen that turn violent in countries like Ghana recently. We've seen that turn violent in countries like Sierra Leone. And we're also seeing that slowly in Nigeria, where, you know, all sorts of groups, even government um, law enforcement agencies, the police, for example, are taking to the streets to protest um, low wages. The second trend we're also seeing are, you know, higher rates of youth participation in electoral processes. So some of these frustrations are then being channeled into political processes as a way, I would say, of these youths and, 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 you know, citizens trying to essentially have a say in how governance is managed in their countries. So in countries like Nigeria, for example, we're seeing about 70% of newly registered voters being younger and also openly backing younger politicians, even though most of them are like pro-establishment or part of the existing political elite. So for example, in Nigeria, there's a lot of excitement around third force party known as the Labour Party and its candidate Peter Obi, who was a part of the main political opposition, the PDP, just about six months ago. But he's been back because he's seen, you know, as a younger, you know, fresher candidate that's able to bring fresh perspectives to the country's challenges and deal with it. We're also seeing them being backed against federal politicians. And we've seen this, for example, in Kenya with Vice President and now President-elect William Ruto being backed over veteran politician Bailo Odinga during the last elections. You know, and the third thing we're also seeing are military interventions, which are even more disturbing. So across West Africa, we've seen um, military coups being instigated by younger coup leaders, countries like Mali, Chad, 
Burkini, Burkina Faso. And this has happened over the last two years. And, you know, more, more importantly, what the trend has shown is that they are backed by, you know, a lot of populist support, a lot of grassroots support. People are taking to the streets to celebrate the fact that their governments are being overthrown. And most of this is driven by their frustrations with the established political elite and their apparent inability to deal with political and socioeconomic challenges. Now, these trends, you know, are only likely to heighten political instability across the continent over the coming year. And part of the things that would exacerbate these trends is the fact that, you know, government proposed resolutions are not likely to assuage, you know, citizen frustrations anytime soon. And tensions are likely to escalate over the coming years and more importantly, disrupt business operations for investors that are looking to come into the country. So we're likely to see governments trying to generate more revenue to address the growing fiscal challenges that they have. But to do that, they would then have to increase taxes. They would probably have to sanction more companies, especially foreign companies who they think would have the kind of financing required to fund their budgets. You know, there, there are a lot of currency controls that are being imposed by countries because they're running out of foreign currency. And that then creates, you know, currency repatriation issues for businesses who are looking to take out their profits after the end of the year. Um, investing in, in African countries. And um, we're also seeing heightened political tensions as a result of crackdowns on protests. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we're seeing violent protests because law enforcement, the police in countries like Ghana and Sierra Leone, the army are coming in and violently, you know, dispersing protesters. Um, and we're seeing, you know, protesters being injured, the police being injured and some even dying. And we're also seeing regional blocs imposing very harsh economic sanctions um, on countries, for example, like Mali, and also, you know, in, in, in other West African countries. And while most of these are designed to pressure the military leaders that have taken over the country to set some sort of democratic transitional timeline, all that then does in the end is that it creates more challenges for business to operate because then they have a lot of trade restrictions and are unable to move money in and out of the country. They're unable to import and just face a lot of challenges as a result of those sanctions that targeting the government but then end up affecting them. I think what Ari really tries to say in terms of the third theme is, you know, businesses must be prepared for the current wave of instability across the continent and, you know, try to avoid being directly or indirectly targeted um, by most of these protests, you know, and, you know, the tensions around elections and the military interventions that we're seeing and essentially just trying to plan ahead and work towards a avoiding potential sanctions or compliance issues and engage further with the community. And that's pretty much what the third theme is about. Zainab, thank you for that fascinating insight. Dijak, Zainab has highlighted part of the dissatisfaction with governments stems from the fact that they are cash-strapped, facing discontent, facing challenges from a financial perspective. Jacques, can you highlight some of the countries that are perhaps not coping very well with this? Sure. And I think as a start, I would like to build on what Zainab said on Nigeria. As Zainab said, a $15 billion annual bill for fuel subsidies is a massive bill for a country like Nigeria, especially given their issues with uh, their forex holdings, their currency issues. So that's massive. And even the suggestion of those being scrapped have already caused a lot of discontent domestically. So it's very hard to see how they're going to cut down on that bill. The country has, of course, benefited from high oil prices, but I think to a certain extent that's 
so neat just plastered over these cracks because oil production has dropped a lot. So if oil prices weren't this high, you can argue that the subsidies wouldn't have to be this high, but the subsidy bill would still be there. And this is, of course, a severe drag on the Nigerian fiscus. We should also consider debt affordability in Nigeria. You know, their debt levels aren't that high. But if you look at some metrics like the amount they spend on debt servicing uh, relative to revenue, then that sort of does raise some red flags. Also, if you consider their proportion of external debt, and again, considering their forex holding issues, there are some questions around their debt affordability. And if they have to continue to spend 15 billion annually on a subsidy bill that's you know it, it helps the population a lot but i mean it's not productive spending that's gonna help develop the economy that's quite a severe drag just broadly in nigeria also unemployment levels are still above pre-pandemic levels so you know that's a concern inflation of course uh, most recently hit a 17-year high at just under 20 percent so households are really feeling it the government has stepped in and it was necessarily but how the government plans to step out is a big question. You know, oil prices are expected to drop in coming years. If this isn't accompanied by, you know, a sort of a return to oil production to where it was a couple of years ago to sort of compensate for that, it does look like the Nigerian government is going to run into some real problems in a year or two. And then just uh, another country I think worth mentioning is Egypt. There also inflation is a real problem at the moment. Recently, the latest figures for August came out with inflation hitting 17%, which is incredibly high for Egypt. They had plans to scrap their bread subsidies, but those plans were delayed because of what the government expected the reaction would be from the population. And when they do decide again to scrap these subsidies, uh, it will again test the government's resolve subsidies and other support measures. They, of course, also had a, a massive fiscal support measure announced in 2020, have been a drag on the fiscus. But I think more broadly, uh, looking at Egypt, it looks like the country might be heading towards a balance of payments crisis. They're in discussions with the IMF. They'll undoubtedly need some support from the IMF. And this support, as we know, usually tends to be accompanied by some reforms. And often those reforms aren't very popular. And even with the IMF funding, if you consider Egypt's uh, external funding gap that it has at the moment, given all the financial outflows that it's seen over the past year, it's going to need some additional external funding. And it's at the moment not too clear where that would come from. There has been a lot of funding from other Gulf countries, but we're talking about billions and billions of dollars additional dollars that Egypt still needs to sort of plug this external position. So again, it does look like the government might be compelled to implement other unpopular policies like they have before. These could include import restrictions. I suspect they're going to have to let the Egyptian pound weaken quite a bit, which would of course also have short-term inflation implications. So a lot of these measures will be good for long-term economic stability, but they will pose some clear short-term challenges, which you know, it's going to be quite a rough ride for the Egyptian government, I believe, the next year or so uh, with this massive external funding gap to plug and them to sort of get their fiscal and external positions back in order. And if Egypt does implement these reforms and this then generates discontent on the streets, one assumes that these are the markers that countries like Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya, Nigeria will be looking to. I'm just moving quickly over to Seamus and Patricia. In one sentence, which countries would you highlight as particularly vulnerable to unrest? Or on the flip side, which would you consider beacons of stability in each subregion? Yeah, thanks, Hart. Maybe in two or three sentences. So 
Southern Africa is a fairly benign environment as far as unrest is concerned. So you have economies like Namibia and Botswana where unrest is, is typically isolated. It very rarely spills over or, or becomes violent. Then you have countries like Zambia, Malawi and Iswatini, which do tend to be more responsive, particularly to food and energy inflation and we would expect to see kind of perhaps an escalation in unrest from time to time there but the country to watch which itself is many ways a beacon of stability is South Africa which has the most prevalent unrest and probably the least predictable unrest as we saw in July 2021 with some of the the unrest and rioting related to the imprisonment of former President Jacob Zuma. The ruling African National Congress has an elective Congress coming up in December of this year and of course we're moving to general elections in 2024, which many expect to be the most tightly contested. So I think South Africa would be the country to watch from an unrest perspective, particularly in terms of consistency over time. Thanks, Remus. And Patricia? I would actually say Kenya would be one to watch. As Zaina mentioned, we have an incoming president, uh, William Ruto, who made a huge amount of promises about changing the economic model of Kenya and making it easier for what he terms as the hustlers or, you know, ordinary citizens to be able to thrive, you know, in in this time of, of high global inflation. So he's made a lot of promises, but... Uh, Kenya's financial position is not very healthy at this moment in time. So I think it would be one to watch whether he's able to fulfill even half of the promises that he's made to improve the lives of ordinary citizens and exactly how he intends to fund that. Because, yeah, the Kenyan government doesn't really have the money to, to do much. So I think Kenya would be one to watch also because the election was very close. You know, Ruto won with 50%, just over 50% of the vote, which means that he's inheriting quite a divided country. And Kenya also does have a very strong civil society environment, which means that theoretically people can actually mobilize against the president should he be seen not to be fulfilling the promises that he's made. So Kenya would be the one to watch for me. Zainab, Patricia, Seamus and Jacques, thank you very much for your insights. I found the comments related to the challenge that African governments will have between managing a green energy transition driven mainly by external forces and a just energy transition driven by internal forces to be particularly insightful. In addition, the discussion related to how governments across regions are going to balance debt affordability with subsidies highlights a particularly pertinent challenge given limitations of fiscal headroom in many African countries. Such an important matter, given the risk of poor handling, could have in sowing further seeds where needed of discontent related to government handling of cost of living crisis and other macro issues could be something to watch very carefully. But ending on a high, given the scale of these challenges, the opportunity for reform and private sector investment in sectors such as agriculture, energy generation are significant and promising in scale and value for investors, governments and citizens. You know, we'll leave it there. But the full Africa Risk Reward Index 2022 report can be downloaded from our website. This podcast and a host of other interesting thought pieces will also be found at www.controlrisks.com. Thank you and goodbye. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. 
You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com. Thank you.